We've been working our way through the New Testament. Five chapters a week, starting in Matthew, working all the way through. We are over halfway, end of July, kicking into August, uh, clearly tomorrow, right? So we find ourselves in the book of 2 Corinthians. Some of the verses will be on the screen. Uh, A little background about 2 Corinthians that I think is important. So a lot of times the scripture, particularly New Testament books, the epistles or the letters, they're written in the order of size, not chronologically. uh, And I don't even know if I would call it in importance. But Romans was the biggest, so it must have more weight. And I guess page-wise, it literally did have more weight. So that's kind of how the New Testament is set up, to be this thing where Romans and then First and Second Corinthians. Now, the city of Corinth, you ready to sing? Okay. The city of Corinth is like a, a, an old uh, L.A., New York, incredibly cosmopolitan city. And when you literally look at it on the map, it is this juncture of uh, highways and shipping, So it is this perfectly situated uh, mega city, culture, um, commerce, huge. It's the New York or L.A. of the time. Taking that into consideration, Paul went there specifically to start a church, and he was there about a year and a half or so. And in that year and a half, you can read about that in Acts 18. So as we're reading through these epistles, these aren't just random letters, and you're going to find that out today. These letters rise up from within an existing culture, rise up from existing community, and this particular community was Corinth. So as we look at Corinth and Paul raising this church and then going away, what we find is that things weren't going quite the way he'd laid it out, right? Everybody has a plan. But it wasn't playing out in the right way. And word got back to Paul. Paul was really a church planter. He'd be a place for a little bit, hand it to somebody else, go somewhere else, right? Paul knew his mission. Jesus had the same kind of thing. He was in a city, healed some people. The next day, the whole town came out. And early that morning, he'd gone into the woods to pray. And everybody said, the whole town is here to hear you. And if that was me, I'm like, sweet, let's get some donuts and I'll be there at 10. Let's preach, right? Jesus said, okay, I'm so glad you came out to meet me. Let's leave from here and go into the next city. He said, because that's why I've come. So he's very clear about his mission, Jesus was, and also Paul clear about his, but he got some feedback that things weren't going as prescribed. And so he writes the book of 1 Corinthians, this first of the letters to this church, trying to square some things away. Now, when we move into 2 When you read through the book of 2 Corinthians, it appears that there were two letters. Then as you read through the book, you get a sense that possibly this wasn't the second one. Right? Like there might have been some stuff in the middle, and most of us hate that because we like it to be clean. Right? So, like, what's going on? Why are we missing letters? You know, it bothers us. But it appears that this may not have been letter number two. Like it may have been two or three or four. And Paul references in here a visit that he had, a visit where he came to straighten things out. Old school pastor, and come on, somebody, right? Came back to square it away, to straighten things out, and it wasn't well received. So he starts this church, goes away, hears about it, writes a letter. They still blew him off, so he showed up. 
It didn't actually go great. I may or may not have had an experience like that in my tenure of 30 years, where you come back and it didn't actually play out exactly as easily as you thought. There remained pushback, some like, we don't even really know if you're the guy or not, right? Questioning apostolic authority, questioning ministry, questioning who are you anyway. And as you begin to read, Paul is going to say, you know, they're like, can you show us some credentials, please? Because we're not actually sure you're even the guy. You see, Paul was often in prison. Paul was often homeless. Paul actually wasn't that good of a speaker. And there were other people that weren't in prison, weren't homeless, drove nicer camels than Paul or whatever they drove, right? Drove whatever nicer than him and far more eloquent, not least of which would be Apollos. Apollos, a gifted and articulate speaker. And they began to look at Paul and say, you know, I don't even know who you are, man. You you almost embarrass us. It was a little rough. Paul called it the painful visit. And this is the context of this book, the painful visit that he had to go back and didn't go so well. So they're questioning even who he is and his apostolic spiritual authority and all of that. And Paul stops. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. You're in the church because I started it. He's like, you are the credentials that I have. You want my resume? You want my curriculum vitae? It's you, right? Your very life walking with the king, that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't come in. So it's this very interesting rising human conflict kind of soap opera-ish thing going on in 2 Corinthians. And that's, kind of, that's some of the background. So as you read through this week, we're actually reading chapters 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, chapter 2 tomorrow. Friday, if you're keeping right on with us, you would have read chapter 1. I'm going to pull from chapter 1 today because last week I was in the first, the first letter. So I'm going to pull from chapter 1 and, and talk through some of those things. But recognition of that context, this is one of the most difficult letters you'll come across in the Scripture. It's not chirpy. It's not happy. It's not a background of la, 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 and holding hands and run, you know, through the park. It's not that. This is the follow-up of quite a few very difficult Hard, hard things, difficult, difficult things, difficult things. What I want to talk to you about, I I was out with Baylor this morning, Baylor, God, and I, and we were walking along, and uh, as I was just about home, this thing just came to me, and I just said, your failures aren't final. Your failures aren't final. Your failures aren't final. They don't define you. They can if you'll let them but they don't have to. Your failures aren't final. A few years ago now, Emma would have been little, like toddler little, and I was preaching in Dallas, and I was in a season of my life where I traveled quite a bit. I worked with a parachurch ministry and supported metro city church planters, so I had the opportunity to travel all over the country. I happened to be in Dallas. And I would go and I would do business, and then they might ask me to hang around and preach or something like that. And this particular time, I was there during a week-long stint, and it was simply a Bible study. It was just a Wednesday night Bible study church, and I was there, and I don't know, a couple hundred people maybe in the room, and just doing a Bible study. I was talking about freedom, and I was talking about forgiveness and righteousness, just some things like that. And there was a fella in the room sitting in the back, and I recognized him because our family knew him. Uh, His name was Irvin Baxter. 
And Irvin Baxter actually used to live in Richmond, Indiana, and then relocated to Dallas. And Irvin Baxter had a, a, a big focus. He pastored for a little bit, but then he did a big focus on prophecy. So much so that he moved to Dallas, had this huge, big ministry, coast to coast, uh, syndicated radio, all, all that kind of deal. It was actually quite a, quite a big deal. And he called it politics and religion. So I knew him, and he was there. It was just a Wednesday Bible study. And so I did, did my thing and shared and taught and such. And then afterward, the pastor connected us. And he said, my radio show is politics and religion, but if you'll come on tomorrow, I'd like to talk about family. Because I was talking about emotional healing, forgiveness, things like that. And I'm like, sure, yeah, no worries, love to. So the next day, the pastor of the church and I, we drive over, and there's a couple people with us. And so we go into the compound and the, the studio, you know. Everybody kind of has a picture of what that looks like if you watch ESPN radio. Like, we don't listen to ESPN radio anymore. We, we watch it, right? We watch people with the mics in the room, back and forth. You see all the lights and on air. And, you, you know, back then, not quite so much. Currently, we're a little more aware of that. So I wasn't exactly sure what I was walking into, and I'd been interviewed by different people before, but this was absolutely the biggest venue I'd ever been a part of, like 50,000-watt FM radio, kind of like KMOX around here, that kind of a thing. It was the Dallas station. So I'm in there, and we're going to do an hour. I don't know what to expect, but we talked for about a half hour or so, and I'd written a book on forgiveness, and so he had that, and we were just discussing points, and that was the first half hour. In the second half hour, I start taking phone calls, which was super cool, like possibly the calling for the rest of my life, right? Just I would dig three hours of that every day, just sitting and taking phone calls, right? And just mixing it up with people. It was very energizing. It was very, very fun. And it was cool to think that, you know, caller from Washington State, you know, that whole deal. And caller from Baltimore. And that was like, man, this is fun. This is super cool. So I was sitting in there, and we were talking about freedom and forgiveness. And the book that I had written was titled Freedom through forgiveness, the 11th commandment. And so it was a story of my loss. It was a story of my parents passing. It was a story of my shame. It was a story of the anger. It was all that whole deal. And the journey that God took me through to grow through to get out of that stuff. So that was the backdrop. And at the very end, it's one of those deals where you got, you know, 40 seconds. And they're like, all right, so in the last minute, hey, thanks so much. And, and this guy, he says, he said, we just got a few minutes more, but uh, I'm sure a lot of people, I'm sure a lot of people say thank you when they read the book or they hear you speak on this stuff. I'm, I'm sure they say thank you. And I said to him, well, I say, I say thanks to them. He's like, whoa, what? I said, no, 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 I say thanks to them. He said, dude, you're dropping this on me with 30 seconds to go in the show? Like, what? He's like, He's like what do you mean you say thanks to them? And I said, well, man, I already went through it. Like, I already suffered. If me telling the story of God's redemption, if me telling the story of how I got through, how God brought me through, if me telling that story helps them, then it gives purpose to my suffering. And for that... I say thank you. It didn't seem as profound as apparently it is. <laughs> like to me, it was just like, man, I've already suffered. Like I already had great loss. 
Like it's just, it's in the book, it's in the history books. Like I've had it, I've experienced, I've got the scars, right? It hurt, it was rough. This sermon started at 10 o'clock, didn't it? It did with what you shared this morning, Marianne. Yeah, it was hard. And if, when I'm able to share with somebody what's going on, how God brought me through, if that helps you, then it gives purpose and redemption to my story. If you look at chapter 1 in 2 Corinthians, and if you go to verse 3 and verse 4, this has already been read. She read a little longer than I'm going to read to you right now. But this is what we're talking about. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort. You can hold that there. Compassion means to suffer with. That's what compassion means as a word, to suffer with. Like I've walked that road. This Father of, I've walked that road. This Father of compassion. The reason that Jesus came is so this could be. Now, I'm going to say something controversial for the first time ever from here. (laughs) Here's the deal. I don't know what kind of compassion God actually had until Jesus. I'm not sure. But I say it because I'm thinking it was a little thin. Jesus came so that he, we could know him, but so that he could know us. Tempted in all points like as we, so he could know us. God said to Abraham when he was on the mountain, he said, okay, now I know. What does that mean? You weren't weren't sure before? (laughs) Why would you say it like that? Now I know. So I believe that Jesus among us, Emmanuel, God with us, God with us, the ability to feel and sense and know because compassion is walking with someone, walking through it. Next verse, buddy. Verse 4. He comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves receive. That's the economy. We're in this moment. He said it. You're going to have trouble. Isn't that true? Every promise in the book is mine. That's one of the promises. One of the promises God gave us is you're going to have trouble. But he said, be of good cheer. I've overcome the world, right? So it's this thing that we are going to have bumpy rides and then some. That's just the nature of our life. And the beautiful part of this is that it doesn't have to be hidden. That's the freedom piece. The freedom piece is that there is no shame in those moments. You don't have to raise your hand, but it'd be interesting to ask how many of us feel pressure to be God's defense attorney? Like, I can't have trouble in my life because that's not a good witness. Welcome to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. Right? I can't have trouble in my life because that's not a good witness. Years ago, 
I did pre-marriage education with a young couple. And the wife and the husband, the fiancés, right, before they're married, talking to them both. And the husband, his mother was a colleague of mine. They were Cuban. She was fiery. And she paid me to see her son as the wedding gift to help them. So I'm meeting with her boy. His fiance is there. We talked about how their parents argued, how their parents would fight, you know, how that would happen, what they saw. This guy told me about my friend, his mom, and her husband, who were pretty strong and had some YouTube viral material in their background, right? Some things that could have gone, uh, right? So they're talking about that. And he said, and I'd see him go at it. And then at the end of the day, I'd see him sitting together, like snuggled up on the couch, watching TV. And I don't know everything that happened, but I did see, you know, and ducking things. And then, then they're like sitting there together, right? I saw conflict and I saw resolution. So I said, okay. And then I asked her, I said, how about you? She said, I never, I've never seen my parents fight. I've never heard them have a crossword to each other. I've never seen them argue in front of me. I looked at her and I'm like, ooh, that's bad. I'm like, that's bad. Because you have no idea how to reconcile something. That seems good, but it ain't. That's not good. Because you have no idea how to reconcile anything. Unless, of course, you and your husband never have a conflict. Then you're all set. But if you do, if you do, you are ill-prepared for the journey. So to have to feel like I'm Teflon and Jesus saves and I'm that all the time. Let me just toss this out here. That's not that helpful. That's not that helpful. Because people are struggling. There's such a disconnect between me standing up here and these seats where you're sitting. Years ago, I went to my pastor. He was big at speaking of Dallas. He was big as Dallas. He was just big, a big man. And the spiritual persona that he had was enormous. He was just powerful on the stage and in the pulpit, a man of prayer and a man of the spirit. He was huge. And I was pastoring 100 students. Melinda and I were pastoring these kids in his church. And I came to him one day. I'm like, hey, man, if you had a minute Friday night, would you be able to come down and just talk to the kids? Like, just honestly, I mean, like, just a minute. It won't even be longer than that. Do you think you could do that this Friday? Because we did youth service. You know, you think you'd do Friday? He's like, well, what, what do you want me to do? I said, I just want you to come down and just a minute tell them I make mistakes too. That's all we need. And you can go ahead and leave. Like, that's all we're going to need from you. Because there's such a disconnect when you look and see whatever's big and going on and spirit and power. I'm thankful for Arnick, who has no issues and leads our church. <laughs> Amen. Silly. It's funny. You should laugh. And it's true for me and true for any other human being that steps into this space. It's true for all of us. Right? And we don't have to cover. We don't have to present. Because this says... The power is this, that the God, throw up, a, uh, Eli, throw up verse 4 again, buddy. 
The one that comforts, uh, yes, thank you. He comforts us in our trouble. If I don't have any trouble, there's no comfort. And if there's no comfort, I have nothing to give except some irresponsible, unrealistic measure of Christianity that nobody's hitting. That's not helpful. So when I look at this and I'm like, you know what? So that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we received. So when I go through it and I'm able to walk with God and he with me and we can journey through that space, that is helpful if, if I'm willing to be vulnerable. If I'm willing to be transparent and really recognizing the power in it, the belief, that's what I'm going for today, is the belief that I don't have to be perfect. And that's not a marketing tool. Like, I don't have to be perfect. I rejoice in the fact that I'm not. That the righteousness that I have comes from him. The power to get through comes from him. I'm going through a space right now in my own life where I am dialed into the mercy of God. The mercy of God for me. Not his grace, not his empowerment, not thank you for your faithfulness, but thank you for your mercy. Your mercy that I need. Not grace to keep me from sinning, but mercy because I'm failing. Mercy because I fall short. Mercy because... I need you. You're not a cool thing that I add on. You are the essence. And I need you, Jesus. You can take chapter 4, Eli. Thank you. This week you'll read chapter 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Some translations would say earthen vessels. And why is that? Aren't you grateful when the scripture tells you? (laughs) To show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. We have this in jars of clay. So sometimes as you're in your journey, and it's so true right now for sure, 1,000%. Some of us have stories in the book where you can go on the radio show and tell them how it happened. Because that chapter is closed. Some of us have that. And then a few more of us are still in the journey. We're still somewhere on that that highway, aren't we? Now, we may feel disqualified because, well, I'm not out yet. How can I help you when I'm not out? Brian, come on up here, buddy. How can I help you when I'm not out yet? Brian needs help. How can I help Brian when I'm not even out? I'm walking it with him. You know how I help him? Walk together. Right? You struggling? I'm struggling. We're both, we're, we are struggling. Oh, yeah. We got our daughters going to college this week, and it's not Indiana State. Come on, saints, pray. We, She's gone. Yeah, well, Thursday, Emma's gone, so when you see us over here, you know how to pray. How am I going to help him? I'm not out of it. His is gone, and I'm taking mine on Friday. How am I supposed to help him? We walk through it together. We walk through it together. Throw that up there again, pal. I'm just teasing you with these scriptures, Eli. We have this treasure in jars of clay. 
intentionally something that's broken to show that it's the all-surpassing power of God. Verse 8. You know these verses. You're familiar with these, but listen to this context. We're hard-pressed on every side. We're pressed, but not crushed. Am I out of it? I'm not out of it yet because I'm still pressed. I'm not out of it yet because I'm still pressed. But I can walk with you. There's validity in the journey together. I don't have to have it all figured out. I don't have to have it all worked out. I don't have to be chapter closed. I'm now victorious. I'll be helping all people that have issues with this because I am currently victorious. That's not it. There's power in being a jacked up mess with faith in God. There is power in being a mess with faith in God as we walk together. So I'm pressed but not crushed. I'm perplexed. I'm perplexed. Can you help me? I'm very perplexed. I'm perplexed too. So we got a couple perplexed folks. But you know what? When you're walking together, I can be perplexed but not in despair. You know the context of this book? Hard things. Hard things. See, our failures aren't final. There's an other side. There's an other side of these things. There's, an other, there's peace on the other side. There's hope on the other side. There's life and love and freedom on the other side. And we're walking through all of this together. Together. I'm perplexed but not in despair. Verse 9, please. Are you free? No, I'm not. I'm persecuted, actually. But I'm not abandoned. I feel alone. I told someone that recently. I said, you're not alone. You feel alone. The devil's going to lie to you, as Jeremy said, and tell you you're alone. But you're not alone. The truth is you're in the body. The truth is you're in the body. I am persecuted but not abandoned. I'm struck down but not destroyed. There's value. This isn't like, well, I can't tell anybody I'm struck down, persecuted, or perplexed. Can't tell them I'm perplexed, persecuted, or in prison. Can't do that. But did you know that sometimes that's exactly what someone needs? Because here's what's being communicated. I have faith, and we can walk together. I have faith, and we can walk together. Because here's the deal. If there were no issues at all, and how many, you don't have to raise your hands, but how many of us, if there's an issue, our first go-to place is, well, there's something wrong with me and God, something wrong in my walk, there's something wrong. The disciples looked at people that had a tragedy, an accident, and he's like, was that, was that their sin? He's like, that didn't have anything to do with sin. The man that was born blind, well, who sinned? Clearly someone sinned. The man was born blind, clearly someone sinned. Was it the man or his parents? You know, people that go to parties and ask questions that they think they already know the answer to and they're trying to be smart? That was these guys, right? They're throwing, now, who would it have been, their parents or the man? And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. What did he say? He said, this is about God's glory. Now, that's difficult, and sometimes we don't have a shelf for that that we suffer things and go through things for God's glory. We go through things to help each other. And if none of us are going through anything, if I'm only able to comfort you, if I'm only able to comfort you in the way that I was comforted, 
but I never had to be comforted, then how am I going to be able to help you? If you're supposed to help me, but the only way you can help me is in how you were comforted by God, but you never had to be or you're acting like you never had to be, then my question would be, how helpful are you? And that's not a chiding. It's an invitation, a recognition of encouragement that God is doing something. Where you are in that journey, walking with it, walking through it. I want to go to chapter 2. I want to read real quickly verse 11. Chapter 2, verse 11. I'm picking this up in the middle of a middle of a sentence. In order that Satan might not, not outwit us, for we're not unaware, we're not unaware of his schemes. Anybody memorize the translation? We're not ignorant of Satan's devices. We're not ignorant of his devices. We're not ignorant or unaware of Satan's schemes. He's cunning. He's He's the roaring lion, right? He's all, he, the devourer, the thief, steal, kill, destroy. That's Satan. But we're not ignorant of his devices. Now, my question would be this. What do you think are his devices? What are the devices of Satan? What's, when Paul writes this, see, it's we're not unaware of his schemes, period. And I busted out the end of a sentence. So before I show you the beginning, what do you think the devices are? What do you think the schemes are? What do you think the things are that, hey, he's like, you really need to be aware of that. Like, you really need to be aware of this guy. It's like an opponent in tennis. First of all, he's left-handed, so you've got to be aware of that because it's going to be coming at you a different way. And don't hit to his backhand because you'd think that would be his weak point, but for this particular guy, not his weak point. Right? And you prep and you look and you're not unaware of the defenses and you're not unaware of the offenses and you're not unaware when you're coaching. You're looking at that, right? You're checking out film. There are guys, pros, pro, pro, pro guys that make, you know, $186,000 a day. Those guys, that you know what they do? They sit and watch film. Am I wrong, Ryan? You watch film, don't you? You're checking out what's coming at you on the football field. What can I expect? We won't be ignorant of that. You're not going to surprise us. What would it be? Pornography? Lying? I mean, which one of the big sins? Murder, adultery, steal, lie, envy? Like, which one of the big ten? Like, what is it? And I looked at verse 6. Go to verse 6. 2 Corinthians 2, 6. This is the context. We were just in verse 11. This is the context of Satan's schemes. According to Paul, right here, right here. I'm not doing a systematic theology. I'm not pulling something from Exodus and something from Revelation and something from the gospel. This is all the same five verses in these sentences. Punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. What is that reference? Anyone know? The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. I'll tell you where it is. 
1 Corinthians 5. 1 Corinthians. What book are we in? 2 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul told this church, the person that is in sin, do not have lunch with him. Do not associate with him. Don't glance his way. Cut him off. That's what we're reading right here. Years later, maybe, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him. What? The person that, excuse me, uh, volume one, (laughs) volume one told us that we're supposed to have nothing to do with him. That we are supposed to cut that joker off. Delete, number, block on Facebook, right? The whole thing, right? We are cutting that guy. He is out of the tree, man. That's how we get people out of the tree of life right now is block them on Facebook, right? Out. (laughs) Paul says this, instead you ought to forgive and comfort him. Now listen, that doesn't just mean forgive. Comfort. Comfort isn't, hey, be, be healed, be whole, my brother. No, no, no. That's coming alongside so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I find this profound as I do business with this, that Paul was like, cut that kid out. He is a cancer. Cut him out. And then I look at this. Forgive and comfort. Enough is enough. Enough is enough. You see, there's some redemption on the other side of failure. Failures aren't final. There's some redemption on the other side of this. Comfort him so he won't be overwhelmed. And I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Someone asked me recently, literally asked me about 1 Corinthians chapter 5. A totally different church that they go to. And we were sitting having dinner. And they asked me about someone on the platform that was doing things that are not to be done. And... They're like, so we were just going to kick them out of the church. What do you think? I'm like, uh, hmm. <laughs> uh, no. Uh, I wouldn't do that. Why? Well, because you want to love them? Do you not do wrong things? You know, it was that kind of conversation. And then they took me to 1 Corinthians 5. And they said, well, you know, in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul cut them off. I said, that's true. But it just doesn't seem to resonate like Jesus to me. I'm not sure I care what Paul wrote. It just doesn't feel like Jesus to me. So there must be more going on than I'm aware of. He said, I'm not making an absolute statement like the gavel didn't come down on the tabletop. And I can read, just like anybody else, 1 Corinthians 5. My failure was to, not, to take them to 2 Corinthians 2. <laughs> that was my failure in that conversation. Because it just doesn't resonate like Jesus to say, you sin, you're out. Not sure we have much precedent on that. And so it just wasn't hitting me the right way. And he says, affirm your love to them. Comfort them. Forgive them. I urge you, reaffirm your love. Verse 9, the reason I wrote you was to see if you'd stand the test and be obedient in everything. Arnett, come on up. Tyler, you guys come up if you would. Hold, hold, crew, uh, Sharon. 
If you forgive anyone, I also forgive him. And what I've forgiven, if there's anything to forgive, I've forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. Are you ready for it? Next verse. In order that Satan might not outwit us, for we're not unaware of his schemes. It wasn't porn. It wasn't gambling. It wasn't addiction. That's not the scheme. Would you put that back up there, Eli, that verse 11? It's not that. It's not allowing redemption. The scheme, the devil's scheme is to not allow redemption. To not allow us to be redeemed on the other side of failure. Whether we're the church saying you can't be redeemed, or we in our own lives are refusing to allow ourselves to be redeemed. I'm feeling walking around these walls. Let's sing that song. There's redemption on the other side of everything. I don't know what flipped the script for Paul. I'm not sure. What struck me this morning while I was out on my walk and I was just thinking about this, what struck me is that this second book of Corinthians is in a messy place. You see, Paul was rejected. The difference between 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians is Paul was sidelined. Paul was rejected. You're like, we think we'd like to follow a policy, and we're not even really sure who you are, and what are your credentials again, please? Maybe that is what set him up. I don't know. Compassion? I don't know. I don't, I don't know. But that's what I was thinking. I'm like, I wonder. What is it that changes that? And then when we realize with compassion that we all journey together, we all journey together. The scheme of Satan is not to get you to sin. It's to get you to take away the opportunity to be redeemed. It's not, I got them to mess up. I mean, he doesn't have that much trouble getting us to mess up, does he? I mean, really? If you know to do good and don't do it, that's a sin. Anybody? Come on. That's not his target. Did you know that? His target is you sin and now there's no redemption. You sin and now there's no opportunity on the other side. There is no hope for change. Freedom is elusive. You'll be saved, but you'll never be free. I'd like to say nay. (laughs) Nay, nay to that. There's something on the other side. Now, when we sing this song again, I hope you sing it with that perspective for yourself and for the room. Hit that verse. Walking around these walls. Think of what you're singing. Struggle. Perplexed. Persecuted imprisoned but I'm not crushed I'm not in despair right and the power and the balance